Welcome, America, to Lessons from the Front. We are live. Carry the load. Well, I'm just kidding. We're not actually live, but this is a very special edition. I am actually sitting in the home on the front porch of one of America's greatest warriors, one of America's greatest people, and that is Herschel Woody Williams of West Virginia. Woody, I am absolutely honored to be sitting in your home in this lovely, lovely part of the country. I think West Virginia is one of the unsung places, and I think y'all keep it that way on purpose. It's gorgeous here. <laughs> Thanks for having us out. Well, my pleasure, and thank you, and welcome to my home, and welcome to West Virginia. Absolutely. Well, I, I, again, I've, you know, I've been through West Virginia before, but this is the first time I've actually uh, been to this part of West Virginia, and we're right near the capital. Um, this, is, this is largely where Woody Williams, at least this part of the country, this is where Woody Williams was, uh, was reared. And, and, and you were telling me a little bit about your, your history. Um, you were destined for the Marine Corps from the standpoint of getting up and doing hard work right out of the gate, weren't you? Well, yes, absolutely. And, uh, and that was beneficial to me when I got in the Marine Corps because I was raised in such a way that when you were told to do something, you never questioned whether you should or you shouldn't. You just did it because that's the way you were trained, you know. So when I got in the Marine Corps and I got an order, I never questioned the order. I, when the man said do it, it had to be done. That's right. You said if your father told you a second time, you're in, tr you're in trouble. So you're in trouble. Don't even go there. Right. Yeah. So when it came to following orders, you were uh, you were zeroed in on that concept, right? Absolutely. One of the things that you told me I thought was was fascinating. Your mother made all of your clothing, your clothing, your, your sister's clothing, and uh, you, so you had three brothers and one sister. All of your clothes were made by your mother using what kind of material? Feed sacks that Feed we got sacks. grain in for taking care of feeding the cattle and horses. And it came in 100 pound bags. And the cloth was very soft and and it had all kinds of designs in it. It made beautiful dresses. It really did. <laughs> so you and y'all probably thought that was just as normal as anything else. And and for you, it was normal it in was. this part of the country. It yes, certainly sure. was. Yeah. Um, what what do you think that said about America of yesterday versus America today? We're a throwaway country today. We throw stuff away instead of trying to preserve it or use it or make use of it, we just throw it away. And uh, That's got to drive you crazy. It does. It drives me crazy. I'm, I'm one of these people, I, I'm not a hoarder, but I don't throw things away just because they're in the way. Sure. Yeah. Now, if they become worn out and useless, why, then yes. But uh, as long as it's useful. Why? And, and, and you lived through the Great Depression as well. So how did that... Um, how did that feed into that to that same concept? I mean, obviously, again, I know you, you say now we're a throwaway country, um, and and I and I watched you at breakfast this morning. You didn't want to leave anything behind. That's right. Uh, you, you took everything with you, and I see so many kids now that that they don't, you know, they they take three bites and then they're done. Exactly. And we as parents aren't real good about <laughs> enforcing that. So unfortunately, it's uh, uh, it, I, I think we're we're. Uh, propagating that that very thing but it drives you crazy but what did it teach you growing up 
It taught me value. Okay. If you had something, it automatically had a value to you, to you, if it was a useful something, you know. And I think that instilled in us not to throw things away, uh, put them aside. You may need that sometime. Mm -hmm. And I'm a little guilty of that, that I put things, think, well, maybe I'll need that somewhere or sometime. And it's been there for years and maybe I've never touched it. But it does teach you value of having. Uh, I had never seen uh, all my growing up years until I was about 16 years old, I had never seen a dollar bill. Really? Really, no. I just never, I don't know why, but uh, the most uh, money that we received was a quarter. Okay. That <clears throat> when, uh, when our uh, crops were all in in the fall of the year, mm -hmm. and potatoes dug and the corn harvested and all, <laughs> all the harvest done, uh, then we could go to town on Saturday. But during the summer months, we never went to town on Saturday. We always had to work Saturday because a farm runs 24-7. It never quits, you know. So uh, just to uh, get a quarter that you could go to town with, and uh, <clears throat> we were about seven and a half miles out of Fairmont, West Virginia, which is in the northern part of the state. <clears throat> and we didn't have an automobile that would you could go out and get in and drive to town. The only vehicle we had was a milk truck, uh, which was a pickup truck. We first had a Model T. Then my dad, when the Model A's came out, he made a trade some way and got a Model A Ford, which had a little more power to it, mm -hmm. and the bed on the back was a little bit bigger. So that that was the farm truck. It, we didn't use it just to get out and joyride in. Okay. It had to have a purpose, and that, that was it. Yeah. So many times we'd walk to town. I mean, seven and a half miles. That wasn't a bad walk. And one way. <laughs> huh? One way. One way. Yeah. And <clears throat> at that time, in my early years of uh, uh, eight, nine, ten years old. Uh, my father died when I was 11, and he was working all the time. It was just constant. He very seldom ever left the farm simply because there was always something to do. And uh, they would give me very often uh, a dime rather than a quarter. They'd give me a dime, and I could go to town and I could either go to the movie for five cents, or need a hot dog for five cents, or get an ice cream cone for five cents. So I had to make up my mind, did I want a hot dog worse than one ice cream? Well, <laughs> well, and again, values. You had right. to make choices. That's exactly and there were consequences right. to your decisions. If you, if you got this, then you didn't get this. And that's exactly right. Okay. Yeah. And, and that, that was a lesson learned and a lesson kept, really. <clears throat> And uh, so dollar bills, they, if they ever were around the house, my mother or my father took care of them, and we kids never did get to see those. So you were 16 when you f saw your first yeah. dollar bill? Yeah. And the reason I saw that <clears throat> was my brother next to me, 
he was not a, a, a farmer. He didn't particularly like farming. He had to do it just like the rest of us. Mm -hmm. But when he got to be 16 years old, somewhere along the way, he heard of a civilian conservation camp where you could go and they would pay you $21 a month and you got your clothes and you got your food and medical if you needed it. And <clears throat> so he joined the Civilian Conservation Corps, which was a youth program that President Roosevelt started to give our youth something to do. Maybe they could learn a trade mm -hmm. in the CCCs. Mm -hmm. and they used those people to build parks, to build buildings, to dig ditches, to build roads, anything, you know, but keep them busy. Sure. And he joined that, and he was lucky enough to be put in one of the camps in West Virginia, which was about 60 miles from our house. And on Friday evening, they didn't work on a Saturday. <clears throat> on Friday evening, he could hitchhike home and then he'd be there, for, you know, Saturday and Saturday night and Sunday he'd hitch back, hitchhike back, back to camp. Well, when he came home, he had some dollar bills that I'd never seen before, you know, because he was getting $21 a month. That was big money at that time. That was big money, yeah. So I'm about 14, 14 and a half years old at that time. And <clears throat> so when I got to be 16, much to my mother's chagrin, I said, I'm going to join the CCCs and go with Gerald. I want to go where he is. So I joined the CCCs thinking I would go to the same camp where he was, but no. They had about 29 camps in the state of West Virginia at that time around over the state. One of them was at Morgantown, West Virginia, where they were building a park. They were uh, putting also uh, rock walls around the top of huge stones so the people wouldn't fall off of the stones, you know, off of the cliffs. And uh, so we, we did that for a couple months. And uh, so next life lesson, do your research. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> you never know where you're going to end up. Well, I had never seen a jackhammer. I didn't know jackhammers existed, but they had a small jackhammer that in order to, to harvest the rock with which to build the, the fence and all that and, and walkways through the park, uh, we had to cut the stone. And we used that little jackhammer to make holes so we, we could take that stone out and use it. And it was sandstone mostly. Mm -hmm. Well, for some reason, I got selected to run the jackhammer. And so they'd put a leather a thing around my waist, over my shoulder, and a great big ring in the center of my back where these straps crossed, and <clears throat> they'd hook a rope to that. And two or three guys would hang onto the rope, and they'd drop me over the edge of the cliff. And I'm there with that jackhammer laying on this arm, drilling holes in this stone. Uh, <laughs> What a job that was. And little did you know and how I'm that was I'm looking prepared. down there, you know, five, six hundred feet. Buddy, if they let loose of that rope. <laughs> oh, my. Okay, I didn't catch that the first time. So yeah. five, six hundred feet down. Oh, yeah, yeah. So I drill holes, and then somebody else would collect the rock, you know. And 
That was a terrible job. So you, you, you mentioned that, that um, Saturday, I mean, you're, you're a very spiritual man. Uh, you mentioned Saturdays. Um, y'all never went into town. And you didn't, really, during the summer, you didn't go into town at all. What did y'all do from a, from a church standpoint? We didn't even have a church. Okay. I had never been in church in my life when I went to the Marine Corps. Uh, we, several we boys, in our early teens, uh, we knew churches in other communities. We had communities all around, like Grassy Rod and Goose Creek and Levels and Grady Creek, and those places had had a church. So every once in a while, particularly during the, the summer months, we didn't work on Sunday, you know, or we had to milk the cows and take care of the essentials. But to go out and mow hay or put up hay or something like that, we normally didn't do that on a Sunday. Mm -hmm. So three or four of us would go to a church, and there was no air conditioning, so all the windows were up in the church, you know, so they could get cross air. And you could stand outside and hear the preacher, because he's in there yelling something. We don't know what he's talking about, but <laughs> anyway, he's preaching. And we'd wait until the church gave, came out to be dismissed, and then we'd try to get a girl that we could walk home with and hold her hand. Now, that was courting in my day. You know. I see. So we'd walk her home, and then she'd go in her house, and we'd go on back home. So we did that a few times. That's the nearest I ever got to a church. <laughs> 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 but yet, like I said, you're, you're, I mean, I know you're a very, very spiritual man. Uh, did you learn that in your early life? Was that taught to you by your parents, or did you learn that later on? Later on. Later on. Yeah. In fact, it was after after my service in the Marine Corps. Uh, one of the unusual things that happened, the first time I went in and joined the Marine Corps, uh, now I'm five foot six at that time. Now I'm five foot five. I'm growing in the wrong direction for some reason. <laughs> but... Uh, <clears throat> uh, I filled out the paper and gave it to the Marine recruiter, and he didn't even look at the paper, just looked at me and said, I can't take you. And I said, why? And he said, you're too short. Because they had a height requirement of 5'8 or better, and you had to meet the 5'8 in order to get in the Marine Corps. So I couldn't go, and I'm 18 years old, and one month after my 18th birthday. And so I went back to the farm. My mother still had the farm, and it was with been cutting down because couldn't get any help. Mm -hmm. And and uh, then in a couple, three months after that, uh, that was in November of 42, in about January, February 43, they took the height requirement off and would accept people less than 5'8". And he came to the farm and looked me up, the recruiter did, and asked me if I still wanted to go. And I said yes, and he said, well, you know, come on back in and we'll, we can now take you. So I went back in, <clears throat> filled out another piece of paper, and on that first one I have no memory of. The second one, I remember there was a block at the top of the form and it had the word religion. And you were supposed to be put a, a C or a P or a Methodist or whatever in there. And I didn't, I had never heard of Episcopalians and Methodists and Baptists. I didn't know anything about that. So I didn't know what to put in there. And uh, we're all standing in line. There's a number of us wanting to go. And I'm standing behind a little short Italian 
boy that was even shorter than me, and he had his paper ready to give to the recruiter, and I peeked at his paper to see what he had in his little block, because I didn't, I, the, the recruiter had emphasized every block must be completed on this paper or it is not acceptable. Okay? Well, I was going to ask him what I, what I should put in there. I was going to ask the recruiter, and I looked at his, and he had the letter C in there. So I thought, well, that's what goes in there. So I put a letter C in mine. I became a Catholic, right? I was going to say, <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, how the, that's how we Catholics have pulled a lot of people in. <laughs> so when I got to boot camp, I had to go to Mass because my, my paper said I was a Catholic. And when they printed my dog tag, they put a C on it and said I'm a Catholic. Yeah, so, uh, but, uh, that's your introduction to religion. Yeah. <laughs> So you, you spent your early years holding a jackhammer. Then you find yourself holding a flamethrower. <laughs> Why did they give the smallest guy the biggest equipment? <laughs> well, he makes a smaller target. <laughs> I like that. I like that answer. Right. And, of course, the flamethrowers um, didn't come out, actually, until January 1944. Okay. They, that's when we first received them overseas. And I remember this great big wooden crates coming into the company. And we saw them, but we had no idea what was in them. And <clears throat> so we broke the crates open, uh, and, uh, the wooden crates, and in there was this piece of equipment none of us had ever seen before, flamethrower operator, you know. So uh, it did have a manual with it. But the manual only told you how to take it apart, put it together, and the part numbers, and uh, what fuel to use in it, uh, which was uh, the first fuel that it stipulated was uh, a phosphorus powder mixed with gasoline, which turned it into a gel, a real sticky gel. So that if you got it on a person, the phosphorus would continue to burn you, and you couldn't brush it off. You know, it was just like Jello. The more you brush it, the wider you spread it. And uh, so we started using that uh, according to the mixture that it gave. And <clears throat> but you're shooting just like a water hose. You just got one stream going out of the flamethrower. And the gunnery sergeant we had in charge of our little seven-man unit. Special Weapons Unit, they called it, uh, was an old China Marine. He had been in since 1935, 36, long in there. Uh, he didn't like that idea because you're wasting almost a whole tank of fuel before you ever get on target. So he decided he's going to mix liquid stuff. So we started off, I think, with motor oil and gasoline. But the motor oil was too heavy, so it wouldn't go anywhere. Even though you had 1,700 PSI in your air tank, it still wouldn't go very far sure. because of the weight of the oil. So we tried kerosene, and that didn't work because it didn't have a flame to it. So you're just, you're just applying old Marine Corps ingenuity to yeah. this to try and figure out, well, the manual says this, but that ain't going to work, so we're going to figure out exactly. some. Exactly. So we finally ended up with diesel fuel and 82-octane gasoline. Uh, and we finally got a mixture that he was satisfied with, percentage-wise. 
enough uh, diesel fuel to give it body and enough gasoline to give it a real hot 3,500 degree Fahrenheit burn. And we began using that. But well, we first shot it into the air like you'd be shooting a rifle, you know. You've got a great big gun off of your air tank, I mean off of your flamethrower, so you're shooting it like you're shooting a rifle. Well, you wouldn't go anywhere because the air resistance, when it came off, it came out of the gun, the air resistance would catch it, so it would just roll into a big ball and not go anywhere. So he trained us to teach to shoot at about 15 yards on the ground in three to four second bursts and make a great big orange flame ball and it would roll. The air pressure would just make it roll like a basketball. Wow. And we could roll that into the face of a cave or uh, into a pillbox and it would go through the front aperture of that pillbox through that hole and that that flame burning at 3,500 degrees Fahrenheit, they don't last. Yes. It's just instantaneous, you know. So that's, that's what we finally ended up with. So your, your actions on Iwo Jima are well documented. Your actions are marine folklore. Um, your humility about the whole thing uh, is I mean, just as American as it should be. And one of the things that, you know, so I, I want to encourage everyone to, you know, to go study the details uh, because it's so well documented. But where I kind of want to pick up on all of this is where things happened as you were being awarded the medal. And what I love is your story about the back-to-back -back meetings with the president and then the Commandant of the Marine Corps. Mm. And that I think you're, you, you were so nervous when you met the President. Yeah. The only time you were more nervous, though, was the next day when you met the Commandant. Exactly right. Can you, can you tell us about that experience? Yes. Uh, of course, I want to go back up just a little bit because uh, I was still on Guam when uh, the notice came through that I was to be shipped back to the States. And uh, we had been, when we came back from Iwo, we completely changed our training regimen. Previously, we had just been trained to fight in jungle warfare type. Now, we're going to start learning how do you fight in a city? How do you approach a house? How do you go through a window? How do you get through a door? And how do you go down a street in a column well, in a city, you know? Uh, and, that, and that was obviously in preparation for the upcoming invasion of Japan. Uh, Kyushu is where we were going to be. Okay. Up. Yeah. But uh, we thought it was all going to be Tokyo. That's all we knew. Uh, we'd never heard of those other communities at all, you know. And uh, the only reason we know about Tokyo was because of Tokyo Rose. She talked to us about it every night. When, if you had a radio, we didn't, but they, they could put it over a speaker and we all could hear it from the speakers nailed up in the trees. And Tokyo, and Tokyo Rose being the Japanese propaganda. Maybe. Yeah. And I mean, she, she told us where we were going. I mean, she had more information than we did. <laughs> Absolutely. So all of us thought, we're going to Tokyo. Well, they, uh, uh, the first sergeant called me to his tent, or sent a runner and got me, 
And uh, I went up to his tent and he said, get in your khaki uniform. We had one set of khaki tans or uniform, and we had to uh, every Friday iron those so that we could stand a Saturday morning inspection. And you had to have your crease in your trousers and in your shirt, you know. In the middle of Marine. the Pacific. Uh, yeah, yeah, we're on Guam. Yeah. So uh, yeah, and, uh, he said, you're going to go see the general. And I said, why? I had never seen the general. I knew his name, but I'd never seen him. I didn't know who he was or where he was or anything. And uh, he said, well, I don't know. Just That's what they told me, go get your khaki. So I went to my tent and ironed my khaki out and got the creases all set and came back and they put me in a jeep and took me to the general's tent. I was frightened again to half to death because I didn't know why I was going to the general's tent. Usually you only go there when you're in trouble. Sure. Right? Sure. So I couldn't figure out what I had done that would require me to go see the general. Well, so when I got there, there was a colonel standing outside. His aide was outside the tent. And he had a door on his tent. We never did have a door on our tent. But uh, he told me. Well, at me, least you had a tent. <laughs> we had a tent, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and we had foxholes dug beside every bunk mm -hmm. in the tent so that when if uh, Charlie came over, we called the Japanese plane flying over Charlie. If Charlie came over and there was a possibility of being bombed, we'd roll out of our tent and roll into our hole right beside our bunk, but out, outside the tent, the, mm -hmm. under the flap, you know. <clears throat> so he told me, gave me instructions, walk in, stand at attention, walk up to his desk, stand at attention until he tells you what to do. I am scared to death. I don't know why I'm there. And I, so when I get there, he tells me I'm being called, recalled to the west, to uh, the Capitol building. And my date of reporting there is October the 3rd and so on. And if he ever mentioned in his talk the Medal of Honor, I didn't know what it was. I'd never seen it, never heard tell of it, didn't know what the world the thing meant. <clears throat> I've made the comparison several times. Uh, 20 years ago, if you'd said to me, gigabyte. You wouldn't have known. I would have. I still don't know what it is, but at least I'm familiar with the word. Sure. Yeah. Well, at that time, I wasn't even familiar with the word. You know? So uh, he told me I'd been called back to Washington, and, and he handed me an envelope with my orders in it. You know, And uh, so... Then he dismissed me, and I went outside, and the colonel was still standing out there, and, and uh, I had this big envelope in my hand, and he said, uh, on the back of that is, uh, is a, uh, a seal. Don't break that seal. That's a court-martial offense. Well, I turned and looked at it. I hadn't even looked at it, and I looked at it, and it was about the size of a silver dollar, mm -hmm. and it had the block letter E in there. And his name was Erskine. So that was his official seal. Okay. And uh, he, he told me that I'd, I'd turn those into Hawaii when I got there. Okay. That's what I did. So, <clears throat> anyway, to uh, finish your story, 
Uh, when uh, we were receiving the medal on the White House lawn, there were 13 of us, uh, seven Navy corpsmen and six Marines. And <clears throat> the medals had been approved quite some time before, like in August, mine was approved in August, but they were not going to call you back from overseas combat just to give you this medal. They're not going to, unless they're going to use you some way. Mm -hmm. uh, some of the early ones, they did. You know, they sold bonds and went around over the country doing that. Right, that's the, the story of Ira Hayes and, yeah. and, and some of those. Yeah. Okay. But uh, with us, uh, there was no reason to call us back. So now there are 13 of us that have already been approved for the medal. Now we're all there at the same time. And, and were all of these recipients from the Battle of Iwo Jima? No. Okay. Well, Guam, Saipan, Iwo Jima, so mixture, you know. And uh, Navy corpsmen the same way. <clears throat> well, everything's alphabetical, naturally, still alphabetical. So they started with the first letter of, you know, like the A's and went through. Well. I'm clear at the end, next to last, the last guy's name is Zimmerman. And so he's last, I'm next to last. Well, they call you up, you walk up to the president and you're standing eyeball to eyeball with him, you know, right cl very close. Mm -hmm. And they read your citation of what, uh, why you're receiving this medal that I had never heard tell of. I had never heard anything in the citation. Nobody ever came to me and said, what'd you do? Uh, somebody else wrote up all the words in the citation based on testimony of my commanding officer and fellow Marines. So I had no, hadn't overheard those words. And I'm standing there listening to these words that make no sense to me whatsoever. There's some big words in there. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, at the time, I didn't catch it, but later I caught it. Of course, they gave you the original citation eventually, signed by the president, you know. And there was one word about halfway through the citation, and it said he went forward alone. I didn't. I wasn't alone. I had Marines supporting me. I could not have accomplished my mission without Marine support. And apparently, the good Lord was with me because they never touched me. In four hours of time, they shot at me with machine guns and rifles and threw grenades at me, but I was never touched. And uh, That'll make a believer out of you, won't it? Absolutely. There's got to be a reason why I say I was saved and the guy right beside me didn't. You know, he lost his life. Why did... Why did he have to go and I didn't? I don't understand that, still don't. So two Marines that, um, that I'd selected to give me protection that day when I would be trying to get to a pillbox to get flame in it, uh, they sacrificed their lives that day protecting mine. And I didn't know them. I knew two of the guys helping me because they'd been in my squad or I'd been in their squad. Uh, but the other two, I just, they were just Marines. And I said, you and you, come with me. And I told them what I want them to do. I want them to fire at the pillbox that I'm trying to get to to 
put some flame in it. You know? yep. Keep their head down while I while I move up. Yeah. Just standard right. fire and maneuver. <clears throat> so uh, I didn't know that that had happened until years afterwards. That those two Marines had sacrificed their lives, and I didn't know who they were. And we didn't find out until the, about five years ago. We finally learned their names simply by the process of computer technology, uh, people doing research, two, two Marines doing research, one captain and the other one was a uh, staff sergeant on uh, Air Force, uh, I mean on the helicopter that hauled the presidents around. Okay, Marine One, sure. Marine One, he was on, he was on those when two different presidents and uh, he got together with the, the captain in the Marine Corps, active duty captain, and they finally figured out that at that particular time, in that particular location, only two Marines that day had sacrificed their lives. So it had to be those two. And the cynic looks at that and says, well, how can you not know that? And, but the reality is, when, I mean, you're not thinking about, I mean, it's survival at that point. That's now you're doing it, I mean, it's, it's very much like, you know, what you do for your foundation is very much like what Carry the Load does. We want to honor those who have made that sacrifice for people they don't even know. Right. So again, the cynic may look at it and say, well, how would you not know who it is? But the reality is you were just advancing oh. to help this guy and this guy. You didn't know them, you didn't know their names, but you knew you relied on one another. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. So you... You meet with the president. You survive that knee knocker. Yes. And then the next day, next day, the all commandant. the Marines were ordered to report to commandant's office or the headquarters of Marine Corps, and each one of us were going to visit the commandant individually, not as a group, one at a time. You know. And, and of course, here again, we're alphabetical. <laughs> you know, so. I'm the last guy next to Zimmer that gets to go in there. And uh, when I stepped into his office, he had, I can remember this red carpet, soft carpet. And uh, he's sitting at his desk. His name was A.A. A. Vandegrift, who was a Medal of Honor recipient from Guadalcanal. So he wasn't wearing his medal. and. I didn't even know he had the Medal of Honor at that point in time. And, <clears throat> but here again, we walk up and stand at attention until he tells you to stand at ease. And, and uh, then he naturally says, you know, congratulates us and thanks us and that sort of thing. Uh, uh, then dismisses us. Well, when we came out, we thought, well, if, uh, the first guy that went in, we thought if he comes out, we're going to find out what the commandant's doing in there when he's in there, or we'll be in there. Classic debrief, sure. But they were smarter than we were. They took him the other direction, and <laughs> we never did get to ask him what, what took place in the commandant's office. So I was absolutely scared beyond measure when I was standing there in front of his desk because I had never dreamed I'd even see a president or the commandant of the Marine Corps. And here is the guy that is the icon of the Marine Corps, the top dog. Yes. And you can't go any higher than this. This is the end of the furry, you know. So I but was just... I, I, I love what 
what he said to you about the Medal of Honor. And the fact that the Medal of Honor was not for you. That's right. It was not necessarily your award. It belonged to all of those who didn't make it home. Exactly right. And I, I think the reason that, uh, when I heard you tell that story before, I had to go, you know, because you just referenced the Commandant, you didn't reference General Vandergrift. And I went, wait a minute. So he was, you know, the, the, this was the, the Commandant at the time also had received the Medal of Honor. So I went and researched it real quick and I went, now that makes sense. That someone else who had received that award was, was mentoring you in just a brief moment about the importance of that medal and what it means to America and all of those who you, with whom you serve. Yeah. And I think that that's where, if I can brag on you for a minute, <clears throat> the, the humility with which you have dealt with your life and all of the, the good things you've done for others, I think is humility that, that we as Americans, that's the, when we, we call this lessons from the front for a reason, that is probably to me the single biggest lesson that anyone can, can teach, that anyone can learn. And I wanna, I wanna shift gears now to what you continue to do with the Woody Williams Foundation. You've touched a lot of lives. You have touched a lot of lives. But I think those lives have also had quite an impact on you. Absolutely, yes. No, no question, yes. Uh, Ghost our mothers, of course, started in World War One, and she started off with uh, a five by seven flag with a blue star in it, indicating that she had somebody serving in the war in Europe. And uh, then that that one was lost, so she decided she needed something to show, signify that that person had been killed, and she developed the gold star then to represent that fact. So she would she hung the gold star over the blue to say that person is not coming home. You know, so that was pretty well observed during World War One. Then one to two, we dropped it. We didn't do anything, yet we lost lives in the military, not in combat necessarily, but we lost lives during peacetime period. And then we picked it up again in World War II. Mm -hmm. uh, my mother had three of these blue stars hanging in her front window. But I had two brothers in Europe, and I was in the Pacific. Uh, the fellow we were with today, Jim Wolf, there were Ten, bro ten. There were six brothers, and four in-laws, uh, all on active duty at the same time. So she had ten of these blue stars hanging in her oh window. Oh my goodness! Yeah, and they all got home, fortunately. So uh, they were very fortunate. But that w went over very well in World War II and was pretty well practiced. Then we dropped it again. We didn't do, I can't remember doing anything during Korea or Vietnam in the way of signifying that this home has lost somebody in the military. Now, working as a veterans counselor, when the, uh, during uh, World War II and after, 
uh, when the military finally sent, or the War Department sent the telegram out to tell the folks that they had lost a loved one, they, they, that was it. They didn't have anything to do with that family after that. There were no services coming from the military to assist those people in their adjustment of having lost somebody. So their only resource was to come to the VA. We were the only place, uh, except some service or, uh, organizations had service officers that could help people. Red Cross could do some, but we were the principal source of people coming to receive file for the life insurance and death compensation and burial information and all that stuff, you know. So I dealt with a tremendous number over the years of those that had been lost on active duty. So it, it was a constant thing, not a bunch all at one time, but it spread over years. So I was always conscious of the fact that this person sitting at my desk, this mother, is there because she lost a son. And that always had a tremendous impact on me. And so, uh, as time went on, we dropped that, quit, quit recognizing the families from any kind of a standpoint, even in the communities. The communities had no, no recognition. And Gold Star Mothers were the only people that formed an organization, and some of them were getting together. But it was very limited, really. And uh, when we dedicated the first Gold Star Family Memorial Monument in West Virginia, about 15 miles from where we're sitting, <clears throat> the monument represented actually 11,474 names that we have on a Veterans Memorial on our Capitol grounds. Every one of those individuals sacrificed their life in the armed forces. But the families had never had any recognition at all. So this was the first actual recognition or tribute that they had received because they gave one of their own. And we thought, I thought, uh, we're done. We've done what we should do in West Virginia, let the other states do whatever they want to do. We had to give a goal when we filed for the nonprofit approval. We didn't have any money. <laughs> Nobody had any money. So we got the nonprofit hoping that people would make contributions to help us out. Uh, <clears throat> Uh, when we first uh, started, I, I, on my own, uh, decided that if, if some city wanted to do a monument, I would donate the first $5,000 to get them started, get, get their fundraising started. You know. uh, that lasted for a couple of years, but it just they they started coming so rapidly. I couldn't afford I couldn't afford to do that anymore. So right now, West Virginia has seven communities in our state already have a dedicated Gold Star Family Memorial Monument. Six more in the process. So we're going to end up with thirteen or fourteen or maybe even more than that 
in this little state of West Virginia. And the goal is obviously to get one in every every state in the union. That was our goal originally. And if I'm not mistaken, every state has has been spoken for, has had a commitment. Is yeah. that correct? That's right. All 50 states now, and uh, of course Montana and South Dakota were the last two, and we just finally got their approval. They're in the process of getting it done. So eventually uh, we'll have one in every every state. So you, you, you took the lessons of General Vandergrift and you took it to a whole new level. You've asked the question, why me? You've made the statement, the cause is greater than I. And so what I mean, you didn't set out necessarily on this journey on day one, but you found yourself continuously in this position. Yes. Have you been able to answer that question yet? Why me? No. I don't. I don't guess there is a real answer. I never. I haven't been able to find it. But uh, what really got me to make the decision that we have got to do something. I didn't know what we were going to do, but we've got to do something to recognize these families. I was speaking to a senior group. Of course, I was also a senior group. <laughs> I was one of them. But I'd been invited to speak to this senior citizens group in Parkersburg, West Virginia. And they'd given me an assignment to talk about uh, what is our responsibility uh, to America, to our community, to serving each other? Well, where do we stand on that? What should we be doing? And uh, I worked up my speech based on those facts. You know? So uh, as we were uh, about almost to the end of my remarks, I looked back over the crowd that I'd been looking back over. But all of a sudden it dawned on me, we have a lot of gray-haired ladies in this group. And I thought, we must have some gold star mothers in here. Yeah. Uh, I did have a little background because one of the National Guard units from Parkersburg had all been activated and they ended up in the Philippines just before it was captured. And some of them were in the death march. And of course, some of them didn't get home because they died during the death march. I had read or heard of that history. So I was reasonably sure we had some mothers there that had lost somebody. So I asked a question. I, I stopped my talk and I said, hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask a question. Uh, do we have any gold star mothers in the group? If so, would you hold your hand up? Well, we had a number, you know. So we recognized them and thanked them for their sacrifice and that sort of thing. And then I went ahead and closed out my talk and, and uh, I'm getting my stuff together. I'd taken some pamphlets on flag etiquette and some words about freedom and I was distributing some of this stuff. And, and uh, one man stayed after everybody had left the hall and he was sitting just a few rows back and sitting there with his head down. I didn't know whether he was sick or felt bad or what, so I said to him, sir, is there some way I can help you? And he didn't, didn't respond. So I turned around to get my briefcase and 
And I heard him walking then toward me. It was a wooden floor, and he was, I heard him walking toward me. And I turned around, and there he stood. And tears were rolling down his cheeks. And the only words he said to me were, Dad's cry, too. And that hit me like a ton of brick. I had never mentioned Gold Star Dad or Gold Star Widow or Gold Star Children, yet Mother, lots of times I had mentioned somewhere in some talk, Gold Star Mother. So I asked him would he share with me, and he agreed. So we sat down, and he told me the story that he had one boy, and he was the only boy in their family. They only had one boy, and he was it. So, uh, but he only had one boy, and he had already enlisted into the Army, had his reporting date for Fort Leonard Wood to go to basic, and the mother died of cancer. So now he's alone. And the boy could have gotten out of it. But uh, the son said, no, I want to serve. So he went on. Uh, went through basic, ended up in Afghanistan, and there sacrificed his life. So he was home alone when he gets this knock on the door to tell him his son was not coming home. No. And so we sat there and shared together and cried together. And I left there, went out and got my car. I had about a two-hour drive back home. And I got my car and I thought, we have got to do something to help those people adjust to get acquainted with each other. There's got to be Gold Star family members in this community, every community. Get them together somehow because they have something to share with each other. They've, they've got a grief that they can share with each other. And on the way back, I, I went by the Veterans Memorial in Charleston. I had to visit that again to put my thought is running. What do we do? How can we do this? And uh, at that time, I was on a committee. Uh, we were building a veteran state cemetery. And I'd been put on a committee to help decide where you're going to put the flagpoles and maintenance building and administrative building and, you know, that kind of stuff. Because the contractor had to know where to put this stuff. Somebody had to tell him. So it was a job of this committee. So the next meeting, I said to them, we have got to do something in this cemetery that would uh, identify and pay tribute to the families who have sacrificed a loved one. Some of them are going to be buried right here in this cemetery. And of course, everybody agreed that we need to do that. And they said, well, what do you want to do? And I said, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but we got to do something. And they said, well, Figure it out. So when I came home, I <clears throat> called my younger daughter and I said, I need some help. She came up and she only lives about five miles away. She came up and we began outlining various designs of what we thought would be appropriate. And we finally ended up with what we have now, the, the four panels and, and the, the sacrifice paddle and the hometown family and patriotism. And, 
And uh, so I had a rough sketch of what I was thinking about and the wording on it. I took it back to the next meeting and they said, well, yeah, let's do that. So uh, on October the 2nd, 2013, we did the very first one in the country, anywhere in the United States. And uh, we thought we were done. Uh, it got on the internet and the son of a father lost his life in Vietnam, saw it, and he lived at Valley Forge. He said, we have got to have one here at Valley Forge, you know, one of the most historical places in our country. Absolutely. So uh, he called and we gave him all the information we had. We didn't have any diagram of this, this rough sketch stuff that we had. And uh, uh, the architect finally helped me get the thing all together. So we sent him the information, and he was number two. And then Tampa, Florida was number three, and then it just snowballed from there. Is it safe to say that you were somewhat given this privilege called life? Oh, no and, question. And, you know, some people, in your case, you survived more than the average person. In my case, I look at it as a privilege to wake up every day and put both feet on the floor. Amen. Is it safe to say that you've taken that privilege and you've said, with that privilege comes responsibility. And I have responsibility to all those who are not as fortunate as me. Yes. And that's, you know, I referenced a statistic earlier when we were talking, and that is, you know, according to the Bureau of, uh, U.S. Census Bureau and uh, statistics. Only one out of four Americans actively volunteer in their community. That could be as a little league coach. It could be at their church. It could be uh, in an organization like uh, Carry the Load or or your foundation. And I and I just I, I marvel at the concept. Just imagine if we can take that and flip that number. Wow. Three out of every four are serving that person to their left and to their right. And I think <clears throat> I look at, at Woody Williams and say, Woody, you've done enough. I mean, you, you've, you've done way more than your share. And I would just encourage all of America and all of the world to look at what you've done and use you as an example of, we can always do a little bit more for our fellow man. Well, I have said many, many times and my lifetime, I owe back much more than I will ever be able to give. I don't know that I 100% agree with that, but with that attitude, I completely understand. Yeah. Woody, thank you for your time. It's been an honor. It's been a pleasure. Uh, I'm humbled to be sitting here at your home in West Virginia, spending time with you. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate always to be able to get the word out and maybe encourage somebody to do something that they never dreamed they would do for the benefit of others. Thank you very much. Yes, sir. Okay. I hope this was as impactful to all of you as it was to me today. Uh, sitting with a legend uh, like Woody Williams, someone who has experienced uh, life the way he has, uh, there's a lot of lessons that we can all learn from it. So thank you very much for joining us. 
please make sure that you are following uh, Carry the Load. Please make sure you are following our partners like the Woody Williams Medal of Honor Foundation. There's a lot of good work left to be done out there and a lot of things to do. So as a final reminder, the final question we all have to ask ourselves every day, who are you carrying?